I spent 20 years working very hard to jump the hurdles of a difficult career track. And things actually went pretty well. There were some failures, but overall, I ended up with a job. I got tenure, I got a promotion. And then I took a breath and thought, okay, now what am I doing with my life? Which I hadn't really asked myself for quite a while. And I had a strange sense of emptiness. everyone. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Stelberg. Unfortunately, Steve has had something come up. Everything is all right. He just will not be joining us today. But I will be joined by a special guest, Kieran Setia, author of Midlife and Life is Hard, both books on how we can apply philosophy to the challenges that we all face. This was a wonderful conversation I am just thrilled that Kieran was able to make the time to join us. We discuss all sorts of topics from grief and loss to the difference between process and outcomes and how we can actually focus on the former in a world that is all about the latter. We talked about the role of feeling in morality and ethics. We talked about how to do good in today's world, really just a a wide-ranging conversation. Uh, As I said, it was just a thrill to be talking with Kieran. Before we get into the show, uh, just a quick reminder that we are 100% independent, which means that we don't take sponsorship. Rather, we're supported by our community. And there are two ways to support us. The first, if you haven't yet, grab our books, The Practice of Groundedness by yours truly and Do Hard Things by Steve. And second, you can support us by joining our Patreon community at www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation for as little as the price of a small coffee. Y'all get awesome stuff, including discounts on growth equation apparel, access to a monthly book club, guides on resilience and sustainable excellence, mastermind groups, and all sorts of other neat additions. So check us out on Patreon buy our books. And uh, with that, we appreciate your support. And let's get right into the conversation with Kieran Sataya, author of Midlife and Life is Hard. Kieran, welcome to the show. It's really um, quite a, a fun, special moment to have you. I so enjoyed your latest book. Thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. Thanks. So before we dive in to your new book, which is Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help, Let's rewind a couple of years ago to your previous book, which was called uh, Midlife. Can you walk us through the impetus for writing that book? Sure. It, it, it won't surprise you. It's a book about midlife and the midlife crisis that came out of my own experience. And the particular form it took for me as an academic was you know, s- special to academic life, but probably a version of this story is one that lots of people have, which is that I spent 20 years working very hard to jump the hurdles of a difficult career track, and things actually went pretty well. There were some failures, but overall, I ended up with a job. I got tenure. I got a promotion. And then I took a breath and thought, okay, now what am I doing with my life, which I hadn't really asked myself for quite a while. And I had a strange sense of emptiness. So it's not that the things I was doing seemed 
not worth doing, it still seemed like it was worthwhile to write philosophy articles or teach philosophy classes. But I had a sense of this sort of hollow repetitiveness in just doing it over and over again. And I was very puzzled by this. I thought, how can it be that I'm doing things that seem worth doing and yet feel empty and hollow? And does it have to do with regret? Or am I making a mistake in the way I'm orienting myself towards my life now? And so I did the the judo move of saying, okay, I've, I'm a philosopher. I'm having a problem with, I work on moral philosophy. I work on the question how to live. And I have a problem about how to live. So let's apply the tools of philosophy to thinking about this. And yeah, that was the origin of the, the midlife book. Can you walk us through the biggest findings first intellectually and then in your own application in your own life? Sure. So I, I one thing I would say is that there are many midlife crises and there, there are people have problems with the past, with the sense that their life has narrowed and options are now closed off, that they're going to miss out on all these other lives they could have had. There's regret about mistakes, misfortunes, failures. So one cluster of problems are about how to deal with the fact that you have a past you can't change and your life has a shape that you can't radically alter or at least can't easily alter now. And then some of the problems have to do with the way in which our relation to the present can be distorted. So it, we could focus on either of those. If we start with the relation to the present, I would say two big ideas that I found really fruitful involve distinctions that philosophy can draw that we can apply to, as it were, audit our own lives, think about what's going on in our own lives. So one is the distinction between what I call ameliorative and existential value, where ameliorative value is the value of solving a problem or meeting a need that really, ideally, you wouldn't face. But since you do, it really matters to address it. And I think one thing that can happen to people around midlife is that an enormous amount of their time is occupied with solving problems, ameliorative value. And that really matters. But you know, if the best we could hope for in life was amelioration, like taking away the bad things and not make life positively good, what will be the point of living life at all? So one kind of shift is to to think again about the things that matter to you that are not just ameliorative. And I, I call those I call that kind of value existential value because it's the kind of value that makes life worth living in the first place. And then the other the kind of distinction that really helped me was a distinction between what I call telic and atelic activities. So this comes from jargon is from linguistics, but it comes from the Greek telos or end. So you can think of a telic activity as a project with an endpoint. And lots of our lives are structured by projects and they do matter, but one of the, the problems with a project is that satisfaction is always in the future. And then when you've achieved it, it's in the past. And what you're doing is trying to take this meaningful thing and finish it, sort of expel it from your life. And there's something self-defeating about that. It's a very kind of self-undermining way to approach your own life. But not all activities are like that. There are also atelic activities. So as well as walking home, there's just going for a walk. Or as well as you know writing a philosophy paper, there's just thinking about philosophical questions, or as well as recording a podcast, there's just talking to people about how to live one's life. And the more we focus on the process, those atelic activities, the less we're mortgaging the meaning of our lives to the future or archiving it in the past. Because if you want to be thinking about philosophy and you're doing it right now, th there's nothing more you could have to, to meet your goal, to achieve the value you see there than what's happening right now. And so that was the other big 
shift in how I approached my own life. So I want to dive into these, these concepts a little bit further. And let's start with ameliorative versus existential activities. It sounds nice and clear cut between the two on paper, but I can imagine in someone's life like your own, there's probably a fair amount of overlap because for you, I could imagine an existential activity is philosophizing, thinking about philosophy, having great conversations. On the other hand, I could imagine that that also feels pretty ameliorative because that's got to be a part of your job. So I'm curious how you think about when the rubber meets the road, taking something that if it wasn't tied to any sort of external validation or compensation or promotion, but now is because you're so fortunate to do what you love, it feels a little bit harder to make that clean split. That's a great point. I I think there are often cases where something ends up having value of both kinds. So I think you're right that for, for me, thinking about philosophical questions has existential value. It's one, if you ask me, you know, among the things that make life worth living, it will be there. On the other hand, it's also part of what pays the bills. So I, I think there's no incompatibility. Things can have both. I, I would say two things about this. The one is, I think the cases where we get into trouble most are the ones where we're our lives are dominated by activities that are purely ameliorative. That's to say that they're responding to needs that we really wish we didn't have to face. And they're not, they don't have any independent existential value of their own. And I think there's a case, second thing to say is I think there's a case that's really quite tricky here, but really important, which is when I talk about ameliorative value, I, I have in mind solving problems or meeting needs we'd rather not face. But not all needs are like that. Sometimes we have needs that actually we don't wish we didn't have. So you might say, you know, the need for other people, you know, spending time with other people, relationships, you know, that they, they respond to needs, the human need to connect with others. But that I think probably isn't best thought of as ameliorative, really, because it's a need, it's not a need we'd rather do without. So I think in both of those ways, because the two can overlap, and because not all needs are regrettable, I think you're right that the relationship between these two is is more complicated than just you know two columns in a on a spreadsheet. Yeah, and we also often at the growth equation we talk about the the difference between process and outcome quite frequently, or what in psychology speak might be harmonious passion and obsessive passion, um, which mirrors this this telic versus atelic. And yet again, I think that. It, it can be really hard day to day to separate process from outcomes, particularly if you're climbing a mountain that you think is a worthwhile mountain and you both really want to get to the top of that mountain, but you also want to be present as you climb the mountain. Um, and I certainly know when I'm working on a writing project, I can get completely lost in the process of researching for an essay or a book and it's wonderful. And then I'm doing the exact same work and it's like a cognitive trap, which is I start to think about, well, how many copies is it going to sell? Or is the New York Times going to run it? And suddenly I'm now staring at the, the top of the mountain and I'm no longer in the process, even though I'm doing the exact same activity. So do you have any tips and tricks for kind of how to behaviorally apply trying to stay process focused when you are still climbing a, a mountain, be it a real one or a metaphorical one? 
It's a great question. I, I do think that we're always doing both, really. We're always engaging in projects and there's the process that accompanies that. So, you know, you're writing a book, you got to finish this chapter, but there's also just thinking about the topic, that the reason why you got into writing the book at all. And it's much more of a question about focus than about changing what you're doing necessarily. Often it's about how you orient yourself towards it. I think that to a certain extent, just conceptualizing it in these terms is helpful. So there's some work that's done just by you know, having terminology or concepts with which to articulate what's going wrong in those moments. But as with a lot of you know, cognitive therapy, there's the cognitive achievement, and then there's the emotional impact on your life. And the, the emotional shift lags behind the, the cognitive shift. For me, the thing that has helped to fill that gap a little bit is mindfulness meditation. And it's a particular way of thinking about the value of mindfulness meditation. So, it, you know, there's just the fact that it can be stress reducing, which is great. And there's, you know, the role it plays in various Buddhist traditions, which is also very interesting. But one of the things that I think we do when we meditate is focus on atelic activities. And it might be as simple as breathing or, you know, sensing your body or listening to the environment. But you, sort of can develop in those in that practice a kind of capacity to detach from thinking about where this is going or what will be achieved in the future and just dwell in the atelic present the the ongoing process so to some extent i i think that those habits can be carried into the rest of our lives but I, i mean the other part of this has to do with the way with features of the way our lives are structured that are not things that we individually can just directly change. So the fact that a focus on the projects, on the achievements is coming from external sources too. So I think about myself, it wasn't just that I suddenly autonomously became a project-driven philosopher. It was because I went from thinking about it as a teenager interested in philosophy to having a career where my career was being structured in ways that I didn't have control over. So I think there's also a social dimension to push back against. When you first started a mindfulness practice, was it hard? And the where this question comes from is I remember once my wife and I went to um, just this was when we were living in Northern California, uh, a day long meditation retreat on parenting. And there was an activity that they called aimless wandering, where you did just that you walked without uh-huh. any destination. And man, the overarching emotion that we experienced <laughs> was stress. Yeah. And restlessness. So I'm curious if you, if, if when you first started practicing mindfulness, um, like what was, was it, a, an unlock that happened pretty quickly or was it more just training you to be okay, not needing the target up ahead the road all the time? I, I still find it very difficult. I find myself in patches or stretches where I'm able to maintain a habit and do it every day. And then periods where I get out of the habit and then it's really hard to start up again. And I've always been a little bit mystified. I think what you said was very helpful because on the one hand, I've never been someone who does huge, huge, long periods of meditation. I've always, my practice when it's going well is always relatively self-contained. It doesn't take that much time out of my day. I can slot it into my morning routine. It really shouldn't be that hard. And yet I find it really hard to maintain it. And when I, when the habit is broken, boy, it's difficult to to start up again. And I, I do think there's it, it is a a way 
the stress you described, I really associate, I resonate with. I think it's a, you know, there's a, the kind of, it's like a plant that's grown in a certain direction and you can retrain your mind in another direction, but it's, it's slow and painful and you kind of spring back to the original way your mind has grown. And so for me, what I'm up against is, you know, 25, 30 years of being in an educational system in which love of learning came to be understood in terms of exam results or, you know, the, the getting grades and the, that kind of structure isn't going to change overnight. And I think it's, it is that deep orientation, this telic orientation to the world that I'm pushing against. So yeah, I find it extremely difficult, uh, continually. All right. Last question on the midlife crisis. And, and now this is some cognitive therapy for myself. So I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. And for the first time that I can remember, probably over the last year, I would not call it a crisis by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm kind of like, wow, like in many ways I've arrived. I'm getting paid a good living to write books about topics I'm interested in. I get to go speak at events about these topics. Um, we have financial security and autonomy. I love my wife. I love my son. We've got another one coming soon. And yet it kind of feels like going through the motions, not in a bad way, but in a way where I'm a little bit scared, where I'm thinking like, do like my inclination is, oh, grow, you know, talk to Steve about bringing someone else on and like creating a, a broader umbrella or a broader movement for what here we call like sustainable excellence. But then I'm like, well, growth just comes with all kinds of complexity. And I love simplicity. So I have this fear that five years from now, from the outside looking in, much like you describe, I'm writing books, I've got it made. And it's not by any stretch of the imagination, it's a, a crisis, but it's a fear of going through the motions. So what advice do you have for me, or that is to say your younger self? This is interesting because it's something that I in a way resisted in the midlife crisis, the midlife book, because it, it's very much a book about ways in which you can carry on doing what you're doing, but experience it differently. And I didn't want to blow up my life. I didn't want to quit my job. I had tenure. I didn't want to leave my wife. I didn't really want to make radical changes. So I was very focused there on what was wrong with my relationship or how I could change my relationship to what I was already doing to appreciate it more. Now, I think one thing that I have learned since writing the book, which I, I expected I would finish that book and go back to my day job. And that would be it. I would have written one book for a general audience. I go back to writing academic stuff and that would be good. And I have gone back to doing my academic job, but I also feel like my life has changed a lot more in the wake of that than I anticipated. So unlike you, that was that was my first general audience book. This is the, the second. So I'm still on, on the you know writing for non-academics in a much earlier phase of my uh, career. And I think that change is, has been extremely helpful to me in dealing with my, my midlife malaise as much as changing my relationship to the things I was already doing and I'm still doing. So I, I think there's some, I, I do think part of what's going on is, is monotony. It's the sense that life is now on narrow tracks. And often you think you have to keep doing what you're doing to pay the mortgage. 
and there's a there is a genuine craving for variety or, or novelty that gets frustrated. So although this isn't something I say in the book, I, I do feel like I've one of the effects of writing it was to come to feel like I should be a bit more adventurous in how I approach the world. So I don't know if that's exactly advice to that I could give to someone else, but it's something I learned in co- in the course of writing the book that afterwards, if I had to write it over again, I would say, you know, sometimes that sense of monotony is about the way you relate to what you're doing. And sometimes it's just that actually doing something different might be really great. And, it, and I think doing something different, not necessarily growth in what you are doing. I mean, that could be good too, but it, not necessarily seeking further excellence or achievement in what you are doing, but just doing something different, I think is, is something that we kind of unsurprisingly miss in, in midlife. Yeah, I love that. It's I, I'm hearing that you're approaching the the solution from these two different angles. And the one angle is, yeah, the first time that you publish a book or the first promotion that you get, it feels great and it is novel. And you can bask in that accomplishment maybe for a little while longer than you can once you've kind of been there, done that. Now it's like, wow, like I know what that feels like if if this is all there is. It it reminds me of the basketball player Ray Allen after he won the championship said the day after winning was the hardest day of his career because he's (laughs) like, well, now what? So there's changing the relationship so that you're not as reliant on those external wins and and making it much more atelic. And then there's also just saying, hey, maybe I need some some more novelty uh, outside of just this like craftsperson approach to, to blinders on doing, doing what I'm doing. The, the other insight that I'll have is you see this all the time in medicine. So I've, I've had the, the fortune to work with a, a handful of large medical groups in, in healthcare systems. And a, a big problem with physician burnout is there's, of course, all the, the structural problems in United States healthcare system and so on and so forth. But man, talk about a telic activity starting in high school. You take your pre-med classes so you can do the medicals, or excuse me, you take your AP classes in high school so that you can do the pre-med classes in undergrad. Then you go to med school, then you go to residency, then you get a fellowship, then you're an attending, then you're an assistant chief, then you're a chief. And now suddenly you're between 40 and 50 and there's no next thing. And I think that drives a lot of burnout in that particular field and in perhaps in other fields as well. You see this in sport, right? With the 35-year-old athlete that retires to addiction or depression because their whole life has been shooting for the next rung of the ladder and then there's no more next rung. Yeah, I that, I, that totally rings true to me. There's the, the two other things that go along with that, I think often are specialization. So you become increasingly specialized. And so the, you, you, you're now doing, the, uh, if you're a surgeon, the surgery that you're incredibly good at over and over and over again. And yeah, it's just monotonous. And another thing is, I, I mean, depending on the career, there's also a shift that can happen that feels out of your control, depending on what your job is, in which you're doing more uh, admin. You're basically going from being the person who this happened. To, this happened, something my brother talks about. He's he started out as a computer programmer, and he still that's what he loves. But he was a computer programmer for a hedge fund, which he now is helping to manage. And now he's doing this thing that is an effect of promotion, but he he can't do and doesn't do the thing that he initially started loved doing, which was just basically programming computers to beat the market, which was this fun game-like thing. And that, that was that was where he got the the enjoyment. And now he can't 
sort of go back and hire himself to do that because he's he's in a managerial role. So there's there's also that's happening to me too. I'm now department head, which sounds fancy, but basically it's just an administrative position where I spend more of my time doing paperwork and admin than teaching and or as much doing that as I do teaching and and thinking about philosophy. So th- that's another thing that I think is very can be on certain career paths feeling like weirdly as you get further along you have less control over exactly what your what your focus is yeah i think so too it's um you get promoted into the activity that you don't actually want to do particularly if you're someone that likes doing the work uh cuz it tends to be not not always the case but in in many circumstances as you get promoted you shift from doing the work to managing the work or marketing the work or being an ambassador for the work or hiring people to do the work you name it yeah, right. Exactly. So in Life is Hard, early on in the book, you write that being happy is not the same as living well. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So the the idea is that there's a, a deep distinction here between happiness as a state of mind, so a mood or feeling or a kind of sense of satisfaction, and actually having a good life. And you can the, the contrast comes out in wild thought experiments that philosophers like. So, you know, you're plugged into an an experience machine, like a simulation like the Matrix. You're the only one plugged in. It's all fake, but you don't know it. And you're fed a stream of consciousness that is like an ideal life. So you feel great. You're happy. But you're not actually doing any of the things you think you're doing. You're not actually interacting with anyone except the machine. So you're not really living a good life. You're not really living well. It's not like this is the life we dream of for our children. You know, this is this is a kind of bleak outcome. And what that's what that illustrates is just that, you know, how you feel is one thing. And whether you're actually in contact with reality and engaging with reality well is another. So I think of living well as uh, about living in the world as it is, living in response to an inattentive relation to the world around us. And, you know, one thing that that will come with is a certain degree of unhappiness, because the world is in various ways difficult for each of us and for other people around us. But that kind of unhappiness is not something to push away. It's something to accept as part of really facing up to reality as it is. And so, in a way, I think, you know, when we think about what I've been working in is in a way a kind of philosophical self-help mode. And I don't mind that that framing. I think self-help can seem sound glib and you know there are things to not like about the genre in some ways. But the main thing is that often the, the goal of self-help is too selfish, basically. It's that you, you should feel great. Whereas the goal should really be to live a good life, to try and live a life that's engaged with the world and the people around you. And that shift, I think, is a very important one in, in trying to not fruitlessly push back against some of the ways in which in which life is hard. Oh, there's so much to unpack here. So the first thing that I'll say is it I couldn't agree more and it feels like well beyond just the self-help aisle of the bookstore we're really swimming upstream here because without going like too meta there's an argument to be made that like the whole consumer system is set up to try to have this goal of happiness. And when life inevitably gets hard, instead of facing that and seeing that clearly, you consume your way out of it, whether it's with substances, whether it's with buying stuff, whether it's with promotions at work, 
Um, but we do all of these things to distract us from hardship instead of accepting it as a part of, of living well, all in the name of being happy. Um, am I, is that, is it an overstatement? Do you think when I say it like that, because I hear you, but it's like, you know, all this Huxley brave new world or the, the Disney or Pixar movie Wally, like we're, seems like we're getting closer and closer to that. Well, I think you're right that there's a particular way in which this, the, the focus on happiness can be exploited and, and, uh, it's profitable to, to, to sort of monetize people's understandable desire to feel good and also to to exploit the fact that it will make us complacent will make us turn away from some of the ways in which society around us is problematic because it's hard and it's unpleasant and right we 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 have the impulse to retreat from it and just protect our own feelings which is understandable and then the way in which it's exploited by you know corporations that can make a lot of money out of it i think that i think you're right that that this is part of a larger social structure and you know the, the, this the whole idea that of happiness as the focus of self-interest has a history you know you don't really if you go back to the greek philosophers who i'm in some ways critical of but one thing they they get right i think is that they when they talk about ethics the goal is a good life and they're not drawing distinctions between you being happy and other people being happy. They're not really thinking about happiness as the goal at all. That's a, a kind of side effect. And it's really in, in kind of modern philosophy around the time that uh, sort of consumer capitalism and industrial capitalism were being developed that the idea that became prevalent that you have to choose between your own happiness and the demands of other people. And yeah, I think that whole conceptual structure is entangled with with social phenomena that are also you know problematic in the way you're pointing to and i also think there's just such a sigh of relief because i i think that psychologically it's often not that someone's not happy that's the biggest cause of their distress but it's then that they judge themselves for not being happy or they try to problem solve their way out of not being happy instead of just accepting that hey living a rich textured meaningful life is going to be full with all kinds of vulnerabilities and sadnesses, and that's okay. And um, I think I think of like the the Buddhist parable of the second arrow, where the first arrow might be the thing that makes you sad or the thing that disrupts your life, and then the second arrow is, oh well, all the self help books say I need to be happy, so something must be wrong. Yeah, right. No, I really like that. I think uh, sometimes happiness or suffering is just needless. But very often when we're unhappy, we're unhappy about something and we're onto something and it's telling us something. And sometimes what it's telling us is a feature of our life we can change and then we should try to change it. And other times, even if you can't change something, like you, you grief at the loss of someone you love, there may be nothing you can do about it, but it's not like you're making a mistake to be unhappy or that it's just, it's a form of self-pity. It's a genuine acknowledgement of the loss of someone important in your life. And that's not something to wish away or, or sort, of, sort of therapize yourself out of. It's a genuine part of living in touch with reality. All right. So I'm going to bounce around a bit because there are truly so many favorite parts of, of the book. And I don't want to just go in linear order because I think it'll make the conversation more fun if, if we bounce. So sure. you have a section in the book, and, and I'm just going to broadly paraphrase the section that I just love, where it's not what you write, but what me as a reader get out of it, and in particular, you're talking about climate change, is when you meet the world on its own terms and you see things clearly, 
you risk falling into freaking despair because there are so many big, serious problems where you trying to fix it is just peeing in the ocean, you yourself. So uh, one effect is to just be in despair. You can also bury your head in the sand and go about life like everything is perfect and kind of ignore it, which I think you would say is not living well. Talk to me about how you think of this middle ground of facing life as it is without needing, and there's nothing wrong with this, but let's assume most listeners on this podcast don't view living well as becoming a, um, like entering despair, whether it's real or performative (laughs) or becoming like a complete martyr for a cause, or at least a martyr in your own mind, but also not wanting to just go about your suburban life and completely ignore these issues. And there's climate change, but for listeners of this podcast, there's gun violence, there's erosion of democracy, um, there's homelessness. I mean, there are sadly so many of these things. And I feel like if you open yourself up to all of them all the time, it's very easy to fall into despair. But if you ignore them, well, then they're never going to improve. And you're kind of in that um, that thought experiment where you're just hooked up to the happy machine. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, for me, a cautionary figure here who I find both inspiring and terrifying is Simone Weil, who was a who, First and Second World War French philosopher and who you know, sacrificed everything and kind of led this saintly life. And on the one hand, this is very, uh, as I said, inspiring. On the other hand, you look at her life, at least I look at her life and think, oh my, if that's what it takes to really face up to injustice, you have to sacrifice everything, then I'm not going to do it. I just can't bring myself to do it. So maybe I should just check out. I I think the 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 ideas I find most helpful here come from uh, American political theorist, Iris Marion Young. She's one of the thinkers who developed the idea of structural injustice. So she was very interested in the ways in which without individual people necessarily having, say, racist attitudes or engaging in racist actions, you can have social structures that together generate racial injustice. So one example would be uh, an example that's close to home is the way that American schools are funded is by local taxation. So de facto, America is segregated. And so if you're black, you're less likely to be able to send your kid to a well-funded public school than if you're white. And that can happen even if no one is deliberately racially segregating schools. That's just uh, you know a function of the way the the interaction of these sort of I- individually innocent-seeming actions. What she says is, Okay, there's there's all the suffering of the world. Ask yourself, what are you responsible for? And think about the systems in which you're implicated, the systems in which you're caught up. And think about they're always collective. And which are the collectivities in which you have some leverage? So, you know, voting, great, worth doing. That you have, you have some leverage there. There's more political action you can take, but often your leverage is limited. What look around for collectivities in which you have a little more leverage, and they might be the local school system, or it might be your local town, or it might be your place of work and its climate, whether it has a climate climate policies. For me, it was thinking when I moved to MIT in 2014 was when the fossil-free MIT student group was really uh, at its peak, and they were putting a lot of pressure on MIT, some of it successful, some of it not, to respond to climate change. And that was a case where what, maybe a couple of hundred students who were really seriously invested put had leverage on this, you know, 
an institution that has billions of dollars in endowment and is has a lot of power and it didn't take that many people to really make a change so i think that i is an empowering way i think to respond to the sense of the overwhelming injustice of the world is find something local and you know there's also a lot of evidence that when you act in concert with other people that's itself a source of sustenance it's just it it helps you deal with the the anxiety about say climate change or whatever it is that 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 is terrifying you so I'm, I'm thrilled because it's not often that I get to ask a, a moral philosopher big moral questions. So how does how do you think about um, William McCaskill's idea that actually what one ought to do is just make as much money as they can, so long as they're not in an industry that's causing harm? So you're not a tobacco executive, um, but you write books or you teach or you work in a hospital. And then to just set some numbers so you don't have to think about it, William McCaskill, I believe, recommends 10% and just give that to organizations that um, have the most leverage based on their staffing, where they're located, so on and so forth. So in many ways, this is hard to object to. Like uh, People giving money to uh, charities that are going to make a difference, charities that are effective, seems like a good thing. And I think the effective altruist movement that William McCaskill and others have have pioneered has done a lot of good. I I suppose that the for me the issue is that there's a, a blind spot about issues of justice. So as the name suggests, effective altruism is about altruism or philanthropy or charity. It's not primarily focused on the question where which what which aspects of human suffering are unjust. So. In a way, the effective altruist seems sees all human needs alike and wants to help. They're not asking questions like how far is suffering in Africa a result of of colonial exploitation, or you know, is climate change especially pressing because it's a case where those in the affluent parts of the world have engaged in actions that are going to cause harm that will be disproportionately felt in Africa and Asia. And I think those questions of justice and complicity are ones that Iris Marion Young really centers and that I think are missing from the effective altruist framing. And and that bears, I think, on these questions about career choice. Because if someone says, well, you know, work for a hedge fund and make a lot of money and then give that money to charity, okay, that, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. But I think one issue to confront there is if what you're concerned about is your complicity with a kind of capitalist system that you think is unjustly structured. That is a complication about deciding that you're going to plug into it in a certain way that, you know, I'm not saying how in any given case, the, the pros and cons work out. It may be that that's the thing to do. But I, I it's a factor that effective altruists tend to downplay. So I suppose that the, the, the slogan response is, we, as well as effective altruism, we need more thinking about justice and the demands of justice. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And what I get out of it is um, they're not necessarily exclusive either. I guess you could say, hey, I'm going exactly. to have a number that I'm going to give to high leverage charities and I'm going to do something super local and super proximate to my community. Exactly. They're not in competition. That's totally right. So you, you could definitely do both. And the only problem would be if the, the EA, the effective altruist framing made it seem like these issues of justice weren't also pressing. And I mean, in some ways, I, I would say, I think they're, they're more pressing because, you know, justice, when, when issues of justice arise, 
we're actually complicit with wrongdoing, we have to stop. That's something that we have to address. And then issues of charity are also important, but I think that they're in some ways secondary. So I, I have a sense of the priorities here, but I totally agree with you that there's no necessary pressure to choose, that you can do both. And that it, it's more that the effective altruist position is missing something that I think is really important than that it's doing harm or is making doing something terribly bad. I want to follow up with another Faustian bargain that so many people make, and I know a lot of listeners of this podcast make, and, and I certainly make, and, and Steve and I uh, think about this and, and talk about this quite often, and that's with social media. So I think that social media as it stands probably has a net cost over net benefit for both individuals and society. Certainly when you look at democratic backslide and also when you look at the, the mental and physical health of young people, particularly young, young women and young girls. I write about this in my books. I write about this in my articles. I talk about this on my podcast. And yet I'm going to share this podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So when you mentioned the, the hedge fund example, it got me thinking, um, have you thought about kind of all of the, the various ways and maybe not directly related to charity, but I'm, I'm using that as an example because it's one I live every day where you're kind of, you feel like you need, or at least there's a perceived need to use the system, even though you'd rather the system not be there, but because it is, it's kind of just what you have to do. Yeah, it's like a tragedy of the commons, you know, where there's this this idea that, you know, you're grazing on a field and if if I graze a few, we each graze a cow on the field. If we if I graze a few more, that's good for me. Although in the long run, if we all do that, the whole thing is gonna gonna fall apart. So it's individually seems appealing to do it, but collectively it's gonna be bad. And that, I think there's the same structure with social media often, where individually it seems like, well, given that the thing exists and this is the way to communicate, I should get on Twitter and promote my book and post links to the latest episode of my podcast although you know collectively it's not i think that necessarily that we should do we should get rid of the whole thing but it collectively should changed, it, it should yeah, be structured reformed. very differently yeah, yeah exactly exactly i so that is a case where i have not thought about this specifically in connection with the issues of justice we were just talking about but in a way i think they would apply so i think the the sort of iris marion young structural injustice response would be, well, look, by participating, one is sort of complicit in something that is problematic. And so the question to ask at least is, well, what as a participant in this can I do to change it? What is the, what can I do to change the way it works? So it might be as simple as, as supporting, you know, regulations on the way in which you know, social media companies are held accountable for content that is offensive or false or misleading mm -hmm. or democratically damaging and saying, yeah, I really support those policies. And I think it's very important that they be put in place so that I can carry on using Facebook without feeling like I'm complicit with the <laughs> destruction of democracy. So, but uh, maybe there are also more local ways to to change the internet that I haven't really thought about. This is the kind of thing that my students at MIT would have ideas about, like, what could you do on a smaller scale to create little communities. I know like th there's things like the open access movement, which is one way in which people, or Wikipedia, I think is in many ways, on, that's a case where I think the pros and cons balance in, in favor of the pro. I think it's actually been an amazing 
resource. So thinking about ways in which we could reshape the internet that would be more positive is something that uh, we could do. And it's something that I meant I have not given enough thought to. Yeah, sometimes I have this dream of running for school board as a single issue candidate around like a, a school district policy on social media use. But yeah. then I actually think about doing it and it's, it's <laughs> terrible. Yeah, although that is the it's exact I it's exactly the kind of thing that would make a difference in this kind of local way that would that would you would see the impact. I agree. I think, you know, I have a teenager and they're doing fine with the social media world, but it's a constant, it's a, an omnipresent struggle to figure out how to negotiate the sense that you have a brand at the time you're 13, or or if you don't have a brand when you're 13, what's going on? Like, why, what, what kind of recluse are you not to be on, not to be on Instagram or whatever? You have these decisions are being made by kids who are extremely young and vulnerable and don't really don't have a brand right like they don't have an identity even if they wanted one or at least they they probably ought not to decide on that at age 13 well you and you don't want to have it track you the rest of your life right this stuff is forever so i i think those conversations are hard and that's another case where i think it's a collective thing like if if what i the fantasy i had along the lines you're describing was much more modest which was just if all the parents could just get together and say we're not giving our kids phones till they're 16 that would be great but as soon as the first few parents fall when the kids are 11 or 12, then it's just a losing game. They, all the other kids get picked off one by one, even though probably most of the parents would have said, if we could just wait a little bit longer, yeah. let's do it. And so, yeah, we, it's a collective action problem. Okay. So in in Life is Hard, you write about this common trap where – you um, you're making your way through life and, and it can just feel like life is a series of projects to complete and you're a straight A student and you want to do well. So you complete these projects and then you die. Uh, how do we avoid yeah. this, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't avoiding death. I wish I knew. I wish I knew that one. But uh, I think the so I, this is where the telic a telic thing is is useful, I think. Uh, certainly part of it is resisting the approach to life in which you're thinking of it primarily as a sequence of projects to complete and that it could be it could be getting a's at school or it could be getting married having a kid there's almost every aspect of life you can start to restructure in terms of projects and in some cases it's more obvious than others how distorting that is like to think of your relationship with your partner as primarily about projects is it's sort of obvious there, even though it's easy to fall into, it's obvious there that there's something wrong about that. The point is, is atelic. It's about a process of interaction. So uh, I think that that's one kind of useful reframing. I mean, the other part of this has to do with a, a wider idea of not just one project after another, but the shaping of one's life as if it's supposed to have a grand narrative, as if you're the hero of your own Hollywood movie, and there ought to be some big story to it. And that can be very tempting. And if it goes well, maybe you can afterwards say, ah, look, I was a huge success. But it's not just that it's risky to frame your life as having this narrative arc leading towards dramatic success, the risk being that you'll fail, and it will seem like a life-defining failure. It's also a way of blinkering yourself to so much of what matters in life, which is all the little connections and attachments that 
make up your life and make it the case that actually none of us really is defined by a single project. And and the worst form, to loop back to our earlier discussion about the way in which these things are kind of socially enforced, often the project that we find ourselves uh, as if autonomously having decided on is a project on which the defining goal is financial or some other kind of social success, fame, or, you know, public Well, and to get to the conversation about social media, yeah. I think you could argue, I'm, I'm glancing down at my notes, because as you were talking about this, I wrote that uh, everything can become a Taylor activity. Like if yeah. your goal is to maximize your LinkedIn or Instagram followers, then yeah, your, your relationship is as good as people are going to like it on social media forget viewing a sunset if you don't get the perfect picture. <laughs> right. And I've had a couple of conversations recently with, um, with people who are, you know, quote unquote, they're so-called influencers. They make their living in these people are not happy. And I uh-huh. think it's because everything gets turned into, um, gets turned into a means, a means to an end list. Longtime listeners will know one of my favorite thinkers is Eric from, uh, on this, and and he was writing in the the late fifties and early sixties about what he called the marketing orientation or the marketing personality, where pretty much everything you do is to increase your personality value on a marketplace. Um, yeah. And I think that 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 happens, right? Because it used to be there was like this distinction between existential value, what you just enjoy about life, and then work. And yeah. even if work was very much project driven, when you left work. You could enjoy these things. But now, due to a whole confluence of factors, the internet, the ability to take worm home, the benefits of perhaps working from like everything's blurred. And suddenly, uh, it can feel like suddenly everything is a project. Um, if you're if you're judging yourself based on some kind of status, then yeah, your hike doesn't matter unless it was nine miles with 4,000 feet of elevation. And then your hike's no fun anymore. And I I totally agree with that. And it, I think it, there's a, a further dimension to it, which is often the standards of success and failure are comparative and competitive. And you, you start to think you can, you can have thoughts like, well, my last tweet got, you know, X likes. Uh, why did this one only get, you know, half as many likes? Like, am I not, am I, am I doing it badly? And this isn't uh, hypothetical. Like, like these are thoughts is, that I have yeah, yeah, <laughs> multiple yeah, right. times this a week. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, yeah, I naturally, I would never have them. No, no, exactly. It's, it's that, that you start to have every little interaction quantified socially in a way that makes it a, a kind of comparative competitive good. You can also then look and see, it's incredibly easy to look and compare how someone else's Twitter account has this many followers. So things that we're already prone to, which is various kinds of sort of assessment of ourselves in social competitive terms that ideally, they're mostly dysfunctional. Occasionally they can drive you, but there's a lot of dysfunction there. Are incredibly easy now. It's incredibly easy to find a currency in which to compare yourself with other people. And it'll be very easy to find people who are doing much better given that, you know, People have millions of followers and so on. So, yeah, I, I, I think this is a case, again, though, where you know, there are things you can do personally to try to unplug and detach from this. Some of it is recognizing that it's happening. Some of it is um, reframing what you're doing in terms that are, that are less vulnerable to this. But you know, going back to the social media discussion, it's also about how 
sort of changing the structure in which people are assessed and valued by others so that that there isn't this framework in place that pushes you to to assess yourself that way. And how do you think about the scale question here? Because in in and again, I asked this for my own cognitive therapy is this is something I think about often. If I am just walking around my local neighborhood or I do an event at my bookshop in Asheville, I feel great. I'm an author. I've got people that genuinely want to talk and listen. I've got all the external and internal validation I'll need. But then I'm only going to sell 200 books. So now suddenly I go out on the internet, like to the world, and suddenly I can sell a lot more books, but no one really cares about me. I'm a no one because I'm not Serena Williams or LeBron James or Barack Obama. So um, I personally find that when I go super small and hyper local, I feel better because whatever yes. comparisons I'm making are to real people. And I know that those people may or may not be kind and they may or may not be uh, compassionate. So like, it's not just about a number, but then I feel like in order to do jobs like we do, you kind of have to play in this bigger pond where I think when uh, behind the scenes, when you and I first started communicating, I, I think I mentioned like a sea of dopamine, which is what it can feel <laughs> like. Um, so how much of this is just because our comparison point has gone from what historically has been our community to now the whole world? That's interesting. I, I, that's, I, having just published a book, I'm, I'm in right in the You're middle of this in the myself. Sea of dopamine, yeah. Yeah. Let I'm me in, throw I'm you a, a raft. Well, it's no fun. <laughs> it's, uh, it, I, I think even if it was in a small society, it would be different, but there would still be the same kinds of reputational anxieties and the same sense that of social standing being a potentially oppressive measure of oneself. And, uh, you know, the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau has distinction, this distinction between amour propre, which an amour de soi, where amour propre is the compar competitive comparative sense of wanting yourself to stand out from others. And amour de soi is a kind of self-love and self worth detached from that. And I think, you know, for me, uh, what the aspiration is to be as detached as it's possible to be from the, these comparative uh, assessments. I mean, one thing that I find helpful in, in, I've been telling myself every time I'm sucked into this with the, the, the book is, Kieran, think about the competition as being you. So could I have written a better book right now? No, I, I wrote as good a book as I could write. I didn't I don't think if I'd sp spent another three years, I would have written a better book. I was, I'd reached what I could do with this project. It would just be a different book if I wrote one in three years. So I feel like, okay, I don't, I, I that's the relevant point of comparison. It's, it's me against me. And in those terms, I feel like, yeah, I, I, I did all right. And if I can think of it in those terms, you know, it doesn't last forever, but there's a certain kind of sense of self-sufficiency that, everything else I leave to fate. Now, it's not that I don't care about whether the book is successful, but I am able to access a perspective on which I think this was just a challenge to, to try to express something that I wanted to express. And yeah, I, I, I did as well as I could. So, you know, what, what more could I ask of myself? And that I find helpful. I love that. It's like the athlete that just wants to express their fitness in the competition. And if Elliot Kipchoge shows up at your race, you're probably not yeah. going to win, but that doesn't mean that you had a bad race. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, even putting it in those terms, I feel like even, even the personal best thing, I think, well, is that too telic? Is that too competitive, you know, competing against my past self? So I think there are pitfalls even here, but I, I still but feel I think like if you, if you make it about effort yes. and like level of presence, then no. Yeah. 
right? Because to, to use the analogy of sports, you can't control if the weather was bad or maybe you cramped up completely internal. So you didn't run, you know, 130 if your personal best was 128. But if you prepared, you did everything you could and you gave it all you had to give on that day, then, you know, it's a win. Exactly, exactly. And I think in some ways that's easier with a book because unless you're very different from me, you're not like writing another book every day. Right. So <laughs> the personal best thing doesn't really come in. It's like the, this was the best I could do over that five-year period. And, you know, um, yeah. So I, I, I like that reframing too. All right. So in the book, you talk about ritual in, in I think I wrote down in my notes, practice. I'm not sure if you yeah. referred to it that, but you definitely referred to it as ritual um, to help us through the challenges and in, in hardship in life. Um, that's something that I feel is also just kind of on the, the decline. And you can see it most saliently when you look at uh, numbers of individuals that uh, affiliate with religious organizations, which has historically been a place that people go for community, ritual, sacred practice. Um, First, the, the, speak a little bit to the value of having these, and then if you could say more about where you get them from in your own life. Well, the case where this was most vivid to me, and there are many cases where I think, well, many places in life where ritual matters. For me, it, it's in connection with grief and mourning, partly because I think there's there's a way in which, so my, my father-in-law died during the pandemic, and my my wife was dealing with this from a distance. It was the pandemic. She couldn't go there. She couldn't be there. So it was it was a kind of central case in which the ordinary rituals and practices of mourning were disrupted. And she was left in this position of trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do? And one of the, the, I think there's a kind of deep philosophical issue about grief in general, which is that when someone you love dies, part of it is about how you will get through things. But there's also an outward looking aspect to grief, which is just their loss. And their loss is permanent. It's not like a year later, you you could say, oh, well, they don't exist anymore. They're dead. But a year has passed. So that's not such a big deal for them. It's, it, that, it, it's, it's not going to fade. It's like that forever. So it seems like, well, I'm going to, I'm registering this loss. And the loss is permanent. How do I, why would I stop? How can I stop grieving? How can I see another side to this? And that's where I think the rituals of mourning are so essential because if you try to just reason yourself, you know, how long should I grieve for? What's the right way to grieve? The answer is there are, there isn't, there's no way to answer that. You have to, that we have to rely on conventions or practices to navigate this. And yeah, so I, I, I'm in the position lots of people are in that I'm not religious, but I can still, I still want to piggyback on the religious rituals that I'm familiar with. And I think there's a kind of question about whether that really makes sense. And I, I think if ritual, if the point of ritual is just to help you navigate things where reason alone won't get you through, I don't think there's anything wrong with relying on rituals that are, are you know, tied to religions that you don't necessarily share. So I think in, in the case of, of um, grief that, you know, the, I'm not Christian, but the the rituals I associate with, say, you know, w- w- grieving m- my parents when they die, I'm going to want some kind of version of a Christian ceremony, and I think, yeah, that's okay because the role that plays is 
is not about expressing belief in something. It's about mapping out a, a, a region of life where you can't just reason your way through it. I think you're, the difficulty you're pointing to is that if you don't have rituals that or, that already mean something to you, what are you going to do? You you have to sort of create them. And the whole point of ritual is that it's very hard to just make it up. It, it doesn't have the gravity that it needs to have. Yeah, exactly. It's something I think a lot about too, is someone that I consider myself um, quite spiritual, but I don't dogmatically affiliate with the religion. And it's like, well, should we just light incense four times a year when the seasons change and have a ceremony outside with our son? Because I, I, maybe this is part of my own midlife thing, but I acutely feel like time kind of passing and it can all just be a blur. And we don't really do anything to mark time. Yeah. Uh, in our nuclear family, because we we are in a religion that would naturally take care of that for us, per se. I mean, I think it's a great question. I think my reaction is, is why not? I, I definitely think that there's lots of, I wouldn't say they necessarily reach the level of rituals, but in my family, again, not, we're not tr traditionally religious, but there's lots of things we do every year. And often if you do it once, everyone like with the family it, it like christmas holidays whatever we will find ourselves glomming onto it and deciding okay that's a thing and now we do it every year and uh, clearly part of what's happening there is sort of reaching for the symbolic power of something that is by repetition marking a particular moment and marking the passage of time so yeah i think it's it's like the way in which people write their own wedding vows if they're not they don't have a religious tradition that they can just take the script from i think well what are you going to do yeah write your own vows and I, I guess the same applies here write your own rituals it they're doing something important and you know the situation we're in if we don't have a religion that we can just take off the hook uh, take off the rack is that w if we feel that need we're going to have to just invent our way through it Love it. All right. So one more question from the book and then one more general question. My question from the book is you write that what moves us first is not reasoning, but an effort to appreciate what's there. And this was in a section where you were citing the work of Iris Murdoch and how so much of our, our I guess, like first intuition or our, our, our gestalt ethics comes from feeling, not reasoning. Yeah. At least that's how I interpreted yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I found interesting because you're someone who writes with such like rigorous logic and structure and reasoning. Um, so this got me into to looking at Iris Murdoch and, and she's got this book called Existentialism in the Mystics. And in the middle of like this book that is clearly cognitive therapy, you kind of have this section where you're like, and like maybe the most reasonable thing we can do is just try to pick the right things to pay attention to and then let them move us. So can you yeah. speak more to that? Yeah. I, I saw Iris Murdoch is a huge influence on my thinking in general and in this book. And yeah, she's someone, I, yeah, it's funny. She's not as accessible. She's a novelist. Her novels are fun and accessible. Her philosophy, oh, it's not it's technical, tough. but it's right. It's not, it's not necessarily, uh, super accessible. I picked up that book after reading yours. And let me tell you, my coffee yeah. <laughs> consumption has gone it's, way up just it's to stay work. with it. But I mean, but, but one of the central ideas, I suppose there's, there's a positive and a negative part. The positive part is that very often sitting with a problem and trying to really describe what's happening is both difficult 
and a huge part of figuring out what to do. And this is something I think people are familiar with in, in their own if you think of the little ethical interactions you have with friends where you're trying to figure out what happened in some encounter, like, was that person really angry with me or were they jealous? What's really going on? And often what you sit with your friend and do is not apply some philosophical theory. It's just try to describe what happened. And when it clicks, you think, ah, now I see what to do. And I think she thinks that's a very central part of our ethical experience, which I think it is. The, the negative part of it has to do with the, the limits of argument that I think there's there are things that argument can do and that philosophical theories can do to guide us when we're somewhat on the same page. I think it has limits in that if someone is absolutely determined to disagree with you and you argue with them, you'll just find that every time you make an argument, they pick a premise of your argument and say, well, I don't believe that either. And you'll just hit a wall. And I don't think that's a reason to think you're wrong or unreasonable or that the other person is being reasonable. I think it just reflects the fact that argument has limits. I mean, it's something that if you think about the contemporary phenomenon or contemporarily uh, prominent phenomenon of conspiracy theories, you know that you can't argue a conspiracy theorist out of it. And I think arguing with someone who's absolutely fundamentally, say, indifferent to justice and other people who just says, I don't care, it's all about me. I don't think you can persuade that person with an argument. You can hope to try to get them to see the world differently uh, in the way that Murdoch would invite you to do. But if you, if they don't see it that way, I think argument is going to run out. And yeah, it, it is a funny feature of, of a, a funny position for a philosopher to take up, to be so emphatic about the limits of argument. But again, I think, I think that's just part of how, uh, you know, ethical life works, that it, it isn't as argument driven as some philosophers like to imagine. Yeah. So my, my final question and we can spend as little time or as much time as you want here, is I'm really curious how it feels to now be writing books that are less technical and, and more accessible and what that is like at your institution and are your colleagues kind of like, oh, this guy's selling out. <laughs> I can tell you yeah. that as a reader, I am so hungry for these kinds of books because there seems to be no like avant-garde thinking on what it means to live well from modern thinkers. So I can read Ryan Holiday talking about the Stoics. I can go back and read the Polycanon. I can read Meister Eckhart. But like, how come philosophy has taken such a turn, at least this is my perception, in modern yeah. times to one of our best friends is a, a philosopher, like by trade, a PhD, and, and teaches at community college. And she... I, I can't even describe what she does. It's linguistics, <laughs> but it's like, why do we use the word and versus yet in these situations, but not as others? And I understand, like, there's got to be this, like, very rigorous foundation of thinking, and she's whip smart. But I feel like I want to know, like, Marissa, tell me how to live better. And it feels yeah. like there aren't too many philosophers that are currently living doing that. So um, it's a loaded question, or I guess even a statement. But um, yeah, yeah, please please respond. I there's lots of aspects to that. I mean, I, I, my sense is that there's lots of philosophy that isn't super accessible. And it, it'll be nice to tell people what philosophers are up to in an interesting way, but it's not really directed at how to live one's life. The frustration is that there's a lot of things that contemporary philosophers are doing that really are about how to live your life, but that are not really being communicated in that way. So I, it's very important to me that although I draw on ancient philosophy and you know 
17th, 18th, 19th century philosophy. My book is not reporting on the the vision of some great dead philosopher. It's saying, I'm going to try and do philosophy. That's what I mean. That's what right I mean now. by avant-garde. Yeah. Like you're yeah. creating knowledge, or at least you're building on knowledge that's there. Yeah, th- th- exactly. So I, I think... Uh, I wish more philosophers would do this. My sense is that there is much more openness to it in academic philosophy now. I th- and so, you know, 10 years ago, I think colleagues might have rolled their eyes a bit. And now if they do it, at least they do it in private. Like, I don't think, uh, I don't think anyone um, objects. No, I, I, I think philosophers have a sense that what you said is right. Because I think we need this more than ever. Like our biggest problems, how to think about social media, how to think about authoritarianism. Like these are things that we need help thinking through and we need structures and and way to try to come to decisions or at least processes. And it feels like philosophers, like where where, where are y'all at? Come on now. (laughs) So I am really optimistic that over the next, in the next 10 years, we'll go from a situation where a handful of philosophers are writing books for wider audiences to a situation in which that's much more common and which also younger philosophers can do it right now. I think it's still, you you sort of have to earn your place in the discipline. And then at a certain career stage, you can say, okay, I don't have the pressure to publish or perish. I can now write what I want. And then you have the freedom that I'm lucky enough to have to, to write these books without worrying that my colleagues are going to say, hold on, you haven't published enough journal articles in the last three years. It's very hard to do that as a junior professor when you're first starting out in the field. But I think even that is shifting. So there's a whole generation of young people in philosophy now who are already writing op-eds for the Washington Post or articles at Eon online or finding ways to write for a wider audience. So that makes me really hopeful about where the future of philosophy is going. Yeah, that's really good to hear. And I'm I'm so glad you might not be glad that you're in this administrative leadership role, but but I am because hopefully you can encourage that because sometimes it feels like you've got, you know, a neighborhood where houses are burning down and we're like, we need help thinking through how to put out these fires. And then philosophy is, you know, four neighborhoods down examining the degree tilt of a hill that's uh-huh. <laughs> over there. And it's like the houses are burning. Um, so I'm glad. To, and that's, that's, that's critical. And I'm painting in broad strokes, but um, it does feel like kind of, you know, an applied philosophy seems really important right now in the same way that perhaps you've seen in psychology um, with cognitive, like the third wave therapies that are really like less theoretical and more applicable. Uh, I I hope that philosophy follows in some ways. Me too. And I think philosophy is a a little behind where in terms of the, the psychology has been a field where writing for a wider audience, sort of explaining your views, like Kahneman and writing, you know, thinking fast and slow, this, that kind of work among leaders in the field is just totally commonplace. And in philosophy, not yet, but, but I hope we'll get there. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for being a leader and, um, and going into the, the depths of the, the general population with a flashlight <laughs> and, and, and shining your light. This conversation was a pleasure. Uh, I said this to you privately, but I'll say it to our audience. Um, This was by far the best book that I read this year, along with Steve's book, Do Hard Things, which was also fantastic, of course. But um, we've talked about that book enough. I I couldn't encourage you to pick up Kieran's book, Life is Hard, uh, more strongly. It was really just a a beautiful, resonant, valuable read. 
Uh, so thank you for writing the book and, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been great.